Okay, starting over again, this is the why and how of exhibits and programs about World War I. I'm Gordon Blaker. I'm the director curator at the U.S. Army Artillery Museum, and we have to have Dr. Francois Bonnell from the Army Women's Museum, Jay Greabill, and Leslie Strell. Did I do it right? Lindsay. Lindsay. Oh, gosh. Okay. Got the last name right and screwed up the first name. So... Uh, and they are both from the Army Historical Education Center, Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania. So, and with that, I'll let uh, Dr. Bonnell start. Did you want to say anything about Jeff and Sam? Oh, <laughs> when this session was originally put together, we had two other we had two other panel members: Claire Samuelson, who is the director curator at the Army Transportation Museum. And she had to drop out about a month ago because the Army couldn't fund her getting here. And then we also had Jeff Larrabee, who is the uh, chief history and museum guy at the National Guard. And he got uh, cut uh, Thursday due to hurricane relief because the National Guard's got an ever-growing role in that. So, yeah. That way everybody know why the names are up there. Yes. So, anyhow. All right, well, good afternoon. Um, I want to share with you just a little bit about um, what we were thinking when we created this particular topic. Um, and so I really just posed the question of, do you have to be a military museum to commemorate World War I? Um, and this is a question we get quite often at the museum. Uh, probably a lot of museums do. Uh, and in our kind of review or, you know, thinking about it, uh, really the answer is no. And then I started to think, well, how can it be no? And if you're not a military museum, how would you interpret it? Or what could you do to interpret it? And so I think that that's how um, the four of us had come up with the, with the topic. Um, so what we're going to do is just talk a little bit about possible topics that I'm going to share with you from some of the, the history side of the house um, and uh, talk to you about what to do if you have no artifacts, because, of course, World War I artifacts are hard to come by these days unless you're an institution that's been collecting them. And then what would you do if you had a few objects or a whole lot of objects, uh, as we'll see, and then also resources, resources that are out there and, and what you might be able to, to use for assistance. So, um, so I want to start off first just with um, sort of an overview. Obviously, this is the Great War, the war to end all wars. wasn't named World War I until after World War II. Uh, but I think what we forget, because it is considered the forgotten war, uh, is the magnitude of the war itself. So this was um, not only an enormous mobilization, about four million men, but tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who will be displaced, who will move for jobs, who will be sent overseas, never dreaming that they could be sent overseas. Um, and it really hit every facet of American society. So every socioeconomic uh, community, uh, regardless of race, gender, ethnicity, location across the country. And so when I was reflecting about you know, how would you Again, how would you commemorate World War I uh, without being a military museum? I thought, well, actually, all you have to do is probably look in a local community somewhere, uh, and you'll find some of those stories. So that's what I really wanted to sort of share with you. And I think these two posters with the creation of I Want You, Uncle Sam, he originates in World War I, as well as this idea of waking up America, because, of course, um, the United States at that time had, had been on a pattern towards isolationism. So in imagery, we often think of... World War I from the perspective of the soldier in the trench, uh, some 42 million 
men will be sent all over the world from all different nations, all the allied nations. Um, and I think, again, because of sort of the way it's um, interpreted, we forget that there are many, many more behind every one of these fighting men. And so when we look at um, you know, what it was required into, in order to mobilize, to train, to send over or deploy, and then to support once they were there, the American Expeditionary Forces, as well as then to take care of their hospital needs, their health care needs, what would happen when they were returned back to the United States, as well as the great influenza, right, so of, of uh, 1918, 1919, the Spanish flu, um, it was a tremendous effort, and it took a lot of uh, manpower everywhere. So when I was, again, talking about some of the resources and things, um, if you think about just the numbers of four million, and how they were organized, literally all over the United States, there were camps that popped up. So um, some of the camps now, of course, are forts, which happens after World War II. So it could be Camp Shelby, Camp Lee. It could have been uh, Camp Devons. Um, just, I mean, literally dozens and dozens and dozens of them. And this is the Army perspective. So we would have to include, of course, all on the East Coast and the West Coast, the Navy as well as the Marine Corps elements that were there as well. So in this uh, massive mobilization, um, where these camps popped up or were built or created, um, also required an incredible amount of support. So required laborers, people to build the camps, people to, you know, to clear the roads, um, et cetera. So if just looking at the geographical location of where you are in, in relationship to a map such as this, it might actually help a little bit in terms of thinking about how your local community would have been affected by the creation of one of these camps. They became literally boom towns, and then in the 1920s, oftentimes ghost towns, and then they boomed again in World War II. So in uh, the course of the war, there's over 100 divisions, which is between 10 and 20,000 men uh, that are mobilized. And so, um, because this is a draft army, and I don't have a map to show where they're from, although I looked very hard. But 100 divisions coming from all the different various states, converging on these bases, by the way, to train, really were comprised of entire local communities. So um, in the middle, middle or second column over, down uh, four down is the Rainbow Division, of uh, one of three divisions, actually, in World War II from the state of New York. Um, so sometimes also it's interesting just to look at the patches because you can sometimes figure out um, which states they're from. But that's also another source of information. It's figuring out in your local community what, uh, you know, if men were, were um, mobilized, then who would they have been assigned to and what was the history of that particular unit or that particular division. And of course, there are regiments and there are support units, but this is really just sort of the, the combat arms, combat fighting man. And the statistic is, is that one in four um, men in every community was, between the ages of 18 and 24, was mobilized. So again, something out there touching probably all of them. So another interesting um, source for, um, you know, story, so to speak, was the way the medical department uh, organized the hospital support, both in the United States as well as overseas. I put the website up there, or you can actually just Google the Army Medical Department Office of Medical History. They have a enormous resource to it. But there were um, hundreds of hospitals, um, over 70 or 75 here in the United States, touching again every community. The idea was that men would be brought back from overseas and, and sent back to their local communities for their rehabilitation, depending on the gravity of their uh, particular wounds. Um, and then also the base hospitals. And what's interesting about the base hospitals is they were entire staffs from the medical schools across the country. 
that were formed, they took all the doctors, all the nurses that they could, and um, sent them overseas. So again, you know, hundreds of, uh, I think there's 127 base hospitals. This is base hospital number 42 from the Oregon Medical School. So Johns Hopkins had a base hospital. Um, the Medical College of Virginia, Harvard University, um, a hospital, First Presbyterian in New York. I mean, all these hospitals um, were mobilized uh, to support that war and that war effort. And the resources from the medical department will tell you where they were, how many of them were there. There are books out there even with the names, the rosters of uh, the doctors and nurses that were called up. Um, and of course, some of them have in fact been memorialized. So what's another interesting aspect of World War I is um, how the welfare and the morale of the troops uh, were supported, again, overseas as well as stateside. And uh, General Pershing, the commander of the American Expeditionary Forces, felt it, it was very important that um, his men be given the ample opportunity to be brought off the front lines out of the trenches and be provided with some kind of rest and relaxation or recuperation. And uh, there was, really was nothing available within the Army, or even the government for that matter, structure in order to provide for that. So uh, General Pershing, as well as the, the rest of the leadership in the War Department, turned to private organizations, what we call today NGOs, right, non-governmental organizations or private organizations to provide that support. And so one of them is the American Red Cross. So if you have a, a local American Red Cross or even at the national chapter, sometimes you can get some information. They were responsible not only for the uh, for the recruiting of nurses for all of the different branches of the military, but also going overseas and running canteens um, and uh, providing for the health side, so to speak, of, uh, of that rest and relaxation and recuperation. Of course, the Salvation Army, we know them as the bell ringers next to the Walmart during Christmas, but the Salvation Army was absolutely instrumental in helping the morale of, uh, of the men as well as the women overseas, 45 it's estimated, 45 of these women were killed. Oftentimes their um, donut trucks, literally, were right behind the front troops headed into the, into the front lines because uh, as you can see from the picture on the right-hand corner there, they're actually baking and making donuts uh, right behind the, the front line. Ironically enough, by the way, with the, with the donut lassies or the donut dollies, donuts back in World War I were considered healthy foods. And so the more they could feed to the troops, the better it was. In fact, Donut Day, which is the first uh, Friday in June, is in commemoration of, um, of uh, the Donut Lassies. In fact, Fort Lee, we had the Krispy Kreme truck come a couple years ago to, to commemorate that as well. Um, in fact, uh, Evangeline Booth, who was the uh, director of the Salvation Army, uh, approached General Pershing and said, um, you know, hey, my army is standing by and ready to go whenever you need us when you get to France. And General Pershing remarked back to her, I'm sorry, ma'am, very nice of you to offer, but I have my own army. And she replied back and said, yes, you have your army, but you don't have my army, and you need my army when you go. And so very, very adamant about how they were going to support, and that was sort of the forcefulness of, of many, of the, many of the organizations. We had the National Service School. These were upper-class upper uh, women. Um, they created these service league, this, these, uh, these service schools. Uh, they had encampments outside of Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Philadelphia, and I think Boston. And uh, <laughs> they drilled, and they were prepared for the defense of the nation. 
So an interesting group uh, as well. Of course, we had the National League of Women's Service, which provided ambulance drivers, uh, um, vehicle drivers, um, sort of the early, early part of the Transportation Corps, the Motor Corps. Uh, again, you'll find them all over uh, wherever there was a need, where these camps were or where these troops were going. And also the uh, Council of Jewish Women and the Jewish Welfare Board, uh, another set of organization that provided uh, support. And lastly here is the YWCA and the YMCA. And they're most uh, known for providing the recreational huts, um, so card playing, letter writing, uh, some nursing, depending on, uh, depending on what the requirements were. And uh, the YWCA in particular supported not only the men, but also all those women who were sent overseas as well. So they had sort of a, a dual role with all of that. So that's just sort of an overview of some of those organizations. So I'd like you to sort of think about, you know, what, what might you be able to do without being a military museum that focuses more on maybe the social aspects, but also the support aspects to the military as it was mobilized. Now my, um, or our uh, um, fellow director here, who was not able to be here, I wanted to share with you, though, one of her special exhibits she created. So this is Claire Samuelson. It's just a couple slides here. And uh, she was in one of these situations, as many people are. She has no artifacts from World War I. The Transportation Corps did not, was not a separate corps in World War I. It belonged to the Quartermaster Corps. It wasn't separated until World War II. But she found a really interesting story, and it had to do with a circus. It turns out, in World War I, because the, this massive mobilization hadn't been undertaken before by the Army, uh, they turned to the civilian sector to find out how to do things. And it was well known that the circus moved enormous pieces of equipment, live animals, which of course in World War I, the Army will send tens of thousands of horses and mules overseas. Um, and so they relied, the United States Army relied on the circus. And so she created an exhibit in her, uh, in her gallery, which is very popular, totally on the topic of the circus and its tie uh, to World War I. And so this is a, a, little bit of the, um, a little bit of the imagery there that you can see. She used bright panels. She tried to recreate actually a, a circus environment within the museum. In fact, in this one, you'll see on the left-hand side the crazy mirror that, of course, everybody loves standing in front of because that's one of those iconic um, aspects of, of uh, the circus. So anyhow, just kind of an ingenious way of taking a story that, you know, she, although she said it took a while to figure it out, uh, she just went for sort of the shock value of the surprise that it would, would be with the public. So I think that there's a story somewhere in your community, in everybody's community. It's just a matter of digging for it. And of course, we're in the sort of the first year of the centennial. Uh, but the good news is, is actually you can celebrate World War I, of course, forever, but certainly through uh, 1919 as well, uh, because many of the redeployments and the return of the soldiers will take place in very late 1918 and early 1919. And the Army will demobilize through 1920. So I'm, uh, that's what I have, and I'm going to be followed now by, by Gordon. All right. And I hit this button, I think. Okay. This is mainly some exhibit techniques and uh, ways to get some World War I information out. Um, <clears throat> this is a uniform case. Um, 
one of the problems with military exhibits is they're usually very drab in color. You've got black, brown, and green normally. So uh, by taking the campaign streamer of World War I, taking the battle or campaign off of it and putting World War I up there, that gives you a little color and it easily identifies what the case is. Uh, that's a enlisted uniform and an officer's uniform side by side, complete head to toe. And then if you're not familiar with the blue star uh, pennant or flag, that is a uh, one from World War I, and those were put in families' windows to show that there was a family member in the service. And the World War I ones are usually specific to the branch, and they're made out of a uh, felt material. Um, this is another uniform case. This was all the equipment of one specific soldier. He came back from the war, uh, took all his stuff off, threw it in a chunk with a big chunk of cedar wood. So there was absolutely no moth holes in any of this stuff. Uh, but he saved his shirt, his bootlaces, his everything. And so we did a case just of show you what all a soldier would have. And he had a pair of pristine hobnailed boots. And to show people what hobnails look like, we took the one boot off and turned it over so you can see the bottom of the boot. Yeah. Um, I believe in representing both sides of the war, so I have a German uniform case with a officer in enlisted German uniform. Dioramas, this is the most difficult exhibit thing you can pull off. Um, they take a lot of room, a lot of money, and an awful lot of time. This one is not big, uh, and it took us four months. So, of course, I have a staff of myself and one other person. Uh, um, and there's a lot of things like, you know, where do you get World War I sandbags? Where do you get a whole bunch of brass shell casings and things like that? And I can clue you into the answers to all those questions. Uh, wall case. Um, when you've got a wall, this is a very simple wall case. It's got a wood backboard, a wood baseboard, and a plexiglass front, top, and sides. Uh, the artifacts are uh, hung either from brass rod with uh, tubing over them um, or other little things like that. Um, but very simple, easy case. Um, Pretty secure, uh, it would take a lot of work to get that thing off. Uh, there's another use of the World War I campaign streamer. Uh, this is a floor case, um, very similar, got the wood base, only the base goes all the way down to the floor in this case, freestanding, uh, so I can move the case wherever I need to. Uh, this one is on gas warfare in World War I, which was a huge new terrible weapon with an American gas mask, a German gas mask, and then that is a German mustard gas projectile in between there. And just a very, very short uh, history of gas warfare in World War I. A uh, small arms case, uh, being an army museum, anything weaponry-wise has got to be ultra secure. This thing's got more layers of security than you can imagine, including bolts in concrete floors, steel cables, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because the case needs to be kind of small, the labels are done with an identification label next to the weapon and then also a more expansive label up above the case. 
And I also like when using firearms to include the ammunition in there so you can see what, what the weapon used. And that is, uh, that is not plexiglass, that is Lexan, which is plexiglass on steroids. You can take a sledgehammer and beat on that and it doesn't break. That's what Lexan is. So uh, nice secure material for such type cases. Uh, mannequins. Uh, mannequins are very nice because they can help visitors better understand what the object is. On the left there, we've got a uh, German, what's called mast periscope. It is a telescoping mast paraphernalia on a two-wheeled cart. The mast will go up to 85 feet and it's got a periscope attached to it, just like a submarine. And this was used by German forward observers in World War I to hide out in, say, a forest and then have a little periscope head up out of the top of the trees to look for enemy. Um, and that's where the uh, forward observer sat. The uh, balloon gondola or basket shows a uh, balloon observer, high altitude flight suit with the headphones uh, rig that he would have been using to talk to the ground. Without the mannequins there, these objects are a lot harder for people to understand what it is they are. Uh, flip books, that is a way we use to take a, a big topic that may have a fair amount of text and put it into a small space. And if people want to walk by it, fine. And if they want to get deep into it, they can. Uh, the one at the top is a World War I artillery officer's diary. Uh, got an original one, uh, heavily edited, uh, just to the you know good parts. Got his background, and then a children's book. I've got uh, basically two and a half children's books in World War One for flip books. Uh, throwing a little color into it, uh, this is uh, one of the recruiting posters from World War One, and then the Army Expeditionary Forces map that was done in 1932, which is very colorful. Shows basically everything there was about the AEF. Uh, and a very nice map, you can order it online and everything. And it's, uh, that one's about six feet tall. Uh, wall panels, uh, I've got wall panels with artifacts like chevrons, uh, the sergeant's rank insignia, and that's a super short history of the chevron. Uh, which is basically uh, chevrons just lightly stitched onto a muslin background mounted onto a board. And then on the right, we've got the famous uh, story of the poem in Flanders Field with the poppy and everything. And I took various photographs of um, graves from US, France, Germany, and put those around the story of the poem and uh, how it came to be written. Uh, I've got quote panels throughout the museum when somebody had a particularly notable quote, um, get their photograph, put the quote up, and put it up on the wall. These are about 10 feet up off the floor uh, in very large size fonts, so they're easy to see. But there's a lot of great quotes that you can take advantage of. Uh, this is a very popular uh, type of panel we have, military slang or acronyms and things like that. Uh, so if you want to know what the difference is between a pants rabbit and a trench rabbit, this will tell you. Anybody know? 
pants rabbits lice, trench rabbits a rat. So, um, but it's just, and they're not all funny terms either. Uh, the term basket case originates from World War I. Um, this is a little question and answer panel thing uh, we have. Uh, we have a lot of things that people frequently ask questions like, what is this? And um, the Jodhpurs or breaches of World War I catch a lot of people's attention. And they go, what is the deal with these pants? You know, because they've got very puffy pants. Um, and that is the very short history of how the Jodhpur became just the most popular type of pants in the world. Uh, macro artifact, this, uh, this little beast weighs six tons. Um, and to help interpret it, I got a couple of photographs of them in service and put those behind the artifact. Uh, we've also got a mannequin associated with this one and we're working on recreating the projectile that this thing fired. Uh, which is a little bit tricky. It's a 21 centimeter, 210 millimeter uh, howitzer. Uh, this is what our typical macro artifact labels look like. We use a vinyl, uh, adhesive vinyl, and we mount them on gator board. And then uh, they are uh, on a simple wooden 45 degree slant mount, which is put on just a generic stanchion. And we had all these stanchions when I uh, got the museum, and so we designed a little wood mount to stick on top of the stanchion head, and the label goes right on top of that. So very easy to do. Um, each one of these has two photographs and also a little block of technical data down at the bottom for the real geeky type people. Camouflage really comes in uh, in World War I, and this is a couple of examples. The top one is an American tractor in American camouflage. Um, everyone looks at that and goes, this is really bizarre. It's ridiculous. It does not work. Well, if you take that tractor and you put it a mile away from where you're standing, you cannot identify it as a tractor because it completely breaks up the silhouette or the outline of the object, and that's the ideal. And then the one below is the uh, German tortoise shell camouflage pattern. Uh, but just trying to educate people about how camouflage really works. The object of the game is not to paint it all black, brown, and green, because that looks like a big black object from a distance. Uh, this is a little side subject that we got into. Um, we had a collector offer us a trench art collection. And this is 185 pieces of trench art dating from the Spanish-American War up to the very recent past, with the bulk of it being World War I. And so we uh, designed a case, and it's simply a collection of trench art from basically all over the world. And trench art's just a fascinating little side subject of World War I. Uh, basic trench art is not expensive and very easy to get. Programs. Um, I've got one basic program and it is a full-on hands-up program. Uh, dress up in the uniform, have the weapons, um, and pass the objects around. That's what the stuff is here on the table. This is a little sample of what I use in the hands-on program. 
because I'm an Army museum and the Army is absolutely paranoid about anybody touching anything, I just decided to buy this stuff. So this is my own personal stuff and I use it for the hands-on programs. Most of you would probably have an education collection or something and you can get this stuff, but the uh, boards that are laid out with the insignia, those are lined up so that you see how they went on each soldier's sleeve because that's a uh, complicated little subject. Uh, basically, World War I is unique as far as insignia goes. Those circular patches are patches indicating the rank of a private first class. And everybody looks at them and they're kind of strange. They're round. Uh, but they've got the branch insignia of each different branch on them. Uh, chevrons in World War I are very different. Um, if you're looking at a soldier and he's got a chevron on his right sleeve, that is a wound chevron. He's been wounded in action. Uh, what you'll see on most World War I uniforms is up on the upper sleeve of the left sleeve is a red chevron point up. That is the discharge chevron. That means that soldier's been discharged from the Army, but because a lot of these guys had next to no clothing, that red stripe allowed them to wear their uniform as long as they needed to. And so that's why you see it on most World War I uniforms. Down below that, point down on the left sleeve, can be anywhere from one to three chevrons, and those are time overseas. One chevron equals six months. So the example I've got there, that guy was over in France for 18 months. So. And that's Chevron's 101 for World War I. So. Uh, this is a little sample of some of the stuff I use. There's the Victory Medal, got a lice comb in there, uh, tobacco, ditty bag, all kinds of different things, French phrase book, just common little stuff. I got the majority of this stuff off eBay for pretty cheap. Um, there's the insignia again, and you can see what's on the table. The uh, one on the top is the officer's medal insignia, goes on the collar, as well as the enlisted collar disc, which was a World War I uh, innovation, basically. Uh, also do German artifacts, not quite as many of those, they get a little more pricey, and some German postcards, uh, including family postcards and things like that. And then uh, this is an artifact, uh, that's my contact information. You got any questions, need help with exhibits, want to know how this stuff was designed or built, uh, just send me an email, give me a call, whatever. I love to help out other museums, kind of the one of the things I enjoy. Uh, the um, bronze plaque there is um, something that I thought was a really uh, nice, uh, commemorative thing of World War I. That is the memorial plaque given to uh, British families of soldiers and sailors that were killed in World War I. And each one of them has the uh, person's name on it. And these were given to the families after the war along with a certificate with the name on it. Um, and they carry the um, nickname of the dead man's penny. Uh, but that's, that's one there. It's about six inch in diameter bronze plaque. So. Okay, um, one thing that I forgot to put out on the tables is books and included in my handouts down here is an annotated bibliography of World War I resource books. 
there's some really good books out there that tell you most anything you want to know. The other handouts include insignia chart, in order of battle, and what that gives you is if you know what regiment a soldier was in, that will tell you what division it is, and if you got what division he's in, you can get what his, history goes along with that. Um, as probably a lot of you know, essentially every World War I soldier's record was destroyed in a fire back in St. Louis a long time ago. The only surviving records for all practical purposes are the draft registration cards. They'll tell you where your guy was from, what he did as an occupation and his basic physical description, and that's it. Um, and then I've got a couple of other just resource things there. And we have some very distinguished visitors in our group here today. We have Bill Brewster and family. Uh, and Bill is at the uh, 1st Infantry Division Museum at Katigny, a fabulous uh, military museum. And Matt Naylor. Matt? He is the, uh, what's your exact title, Matt? President and CEO. President and CEO of the National World War I Memorial and Museum in Kansas City, a truly superb museum that does everything World War I. And uh, Matt has a lot of resources on his website. And if you get a chance to visit the museum, of course, that's where the ASLH is meeting next year, uh, please do, because it just a fabulous museum, uh, covers all of World War I uh, before we got into it and everything. So, uh, and what I miss? Uh, no, because I'm Okay. Maybe we'll have discussion after AHEC goes and maybe questions, you think? Jay, I give you extra minutes. Well, hello, everybody, and glad to be here today. Uh, as uh, Gordon mentioned, we were asked yesterday if we could help out because of two of our colleagues who couldn't make it. So we're happy to be here, but we don't have too many beautiful slides to show you. But we will thank them for taking a few off of our website and we point you in that direction as well. But I want to ask a little question before we get started. This is a nice opportunity to meet with colleagues. I usually lecture to the general audience and so forth, but uh, I'll share a story of mine. But I want to ask, do, in, in the audience, do people remember a moment in your life when you decide you were going to devote your life to working for historical agencies? Was there a, a magic moment? We have one in the back. Yes, sir. Tell us. Cleaning howitzers. <laughs> and you came back for more. That's fantastic. Well, mine goes back to uh, September this month in 1962. I'm sitting in the grandstand at uh, Sharpsburg, Maryland at the Antietam Centennial. And uh, I'm sitting there with my grandfather, who was a, a great lover of history and military history and family history. And I was sitting with him. And there was a gentleman beside me to my right. And sometime during a lull and all of the reenacting, he, uh, he asked me, he said, boy, he said, uh, were your ancestors Yankees or were they rebels? I'm six. I have no idea what I said to him. But whatever it was was the wrong answer. And he said, uh, darn it, boy. He says, them's the fellows that shot off my leg. And he lifted his pants cuff, and he had a prosthetic leg. And I started apologizing, and I was so bad. I'm sorry, mister. And his wife said, hit him in the ribs with her elbow, and said, stop picking on that boy and give him a quarter. So the first veteran I ever met told me a story and gave me money. 
And I decided I could make a career out of this. So I got very interested. Civil War history that day. But also, he was a World War I vet. Of course, I didn't know anything about that at that time. But uh, in the early 90s, I'm working at a county historical society in Maryland. Is there anyone here from Maryland? Maryland, Maryland, Maryland. I want to meet you guys afterwards, because I'm serving on Governor Hogan's World War I Commission, and we're looking for ways to help organizations in Maryland to commemorate the World War I in our state. So fantastic. Born and raised there. I work someplace else. Oh, well. Okay, well, good. <laughs> Anyhow. Um, so I got interested in the early 90s that I'm working at a county historical society, and I wanted to do a commemoration. This was my grandparents' generation, World War I, on the 75th anniversary. I was early, and nobody else in the entire state did anything. But in writing the introduction to my book about World War I in the county, I started saying, well, what did they do? Well, they must have done something on the 25th anniversary. So who's good at math? 1918 plus 25? Yeah, I had to get out the pencil and paper, too, yeah. 1943, right? So it's 1943. So this generation that went to end war finds itself 25 years later in the midst of World War II. And nothing was done in my county. There was no observation of the, the war. So 50 years I looked, what happened? 1968, another difficult year. We're at the height of the Vietnam War and nothing was done. So I decided in 1993 I was going to do an exhibit. I was going to write a book called Carroll County, Maryland, the Great War for Civilization. I use the Great War for Civilization because that's what they use. The medal that was in Gordon's slide with the rainbow-colored ribbon is called the Great War for Civilization on the backside of the medal. So that's what was the title for our exhibition and title for that. And we got out a number of things. We looked at a number of individual stories. We looked at the home front and went on. And uh, I had the only event in the entire state of Maryland for anyone to go and learn about the Great War on the 75th. And I had two veterans. I had a Navy yeoman and I had an artilleryman. We had them there. I had a U.S. congressman come and present them a medal. There wasn't a dry eye in the place. It was a fantastic thing. And of course, 100 years later, now we can't do that. But I was glad we were able to uh, honor those veterans who were still living. And we published a roster of everyone from our state. Uh, going on to AHEC, now I work there. And the Army Heritage Education Center, we teach Army history by telling you about individual soldier stories. So the core of our collections are soldier materials coming mostly from the veterans themselves, soldiers, or their families now. And our collecting policy is we're looking for artifacts, we're looking for photographs, we're looking for diaries and letters, we're looking for AV material, artwork, everything about an individual. So it's a very holistic approach to looking at soldier history. Lindsay's going to tell you a little bit about access to these collections. And we do have a booth upstairs where she's staffing with another colleague. I invite all of you up to come visit us. But this is our new gallery. For the First World War, we opened a brand new wing of our visitor center this past April, and this was the inaugural exhibit. And the curator who worked on this took the title of one of the most popular songs of that day, and that's the title of the exhibition. It took a period piece, and we got permission to use the title. But we look at soldier history from training, and the exhibit takes you through a trench system physically trench system, and you learn about training, then you learn about what it's like to serve behind the lines, and then you serve and what it's like to be in the front lines. And a couple of the cases, as you can see, they're individual vignettes, similar to what Gordon has, and we tell a soldier story. We always put an image of a soldier. We want you to look at a soldier and meet him or her by looking at their face, and then we always want you to read something that they wrote. Uh, one of the real gems in our collection 
We've interviewed soldiers, and then we've had them fill out questionnaires since the 1960s. So we have from the Spanish-American War through the present, soldiers have given us their history in their own words and their images to go with it. It's a very rich collection. And then a great photograph collection. We have a nearly complete collection of the uh, United States Army Signal Corps photography from the Great War. So next, please. So this is one of the uh, trench mortars and our uh, exhibit staff built the entire exhibit. This is the biggest project that we've done in-house. We have a 7,000 square foot gallery that we had to do with a contractor. It's just too vast a project for four guys to build. But this is a trench mortar. They did a simulated kind of dirt, give that environment that you're looking at, the barbed wire they make uh, by hand. Let's see what else we have in there. Next. Do we have another one? Then oh, we go to the art gallery. Okay, so that's our World War I exhibit. We also have a small art gallery, and we traditionally show soldier art in this gallery, paintings, drawings by soldiers. And in this case, we have a collection of an academic artist, this is Milton Bancroft, and he was a painter. He was hired by the YMCA to go to France and go to the battlefields where the American soldier fought and to paint scenes that would be used in the hospitality huts that the YMCA produced for the soldiers for their comfort. So we have original sketchbook, his watercolors, and they're all on exhibit right now. And then we supplemented that with images of those places, real places, from the Signal Corps collections. You can see what the artist saw and you can see what the actual Signal Corps photographer took. Okay, next. That's it. That's it for images. If you go to our website, uh, we have cards here with a website on. There are additional images of these things, lots of sources, and Lindsay's going to talk here in a second about uh, how to get access to these things. But I do want to leave you with the, the latest source I just found for documenting soldiers. Gordon mentioned to you about the Great Fire in St. Louis. I'm actually going on a research trip the week after next to St. Louis to see some World War I and World War II records that have survived. But it's, it's, it's devastating what we've lost out there. But the new source I just found on Ancestry.com, if you have access to that, there's something called the U.S. Army Transportation List, 1910 to 1939. It is fantastic. These are all the ship lists, and they've all been indexed, so you can put in a name, and you'll find the original list. You can go in and see the original documents have been digitized, and it's a, it's a ship list. So this will be everybody from Company G, the 311th Machine Gun Battalion. So if you don't know where your soldier may have served, this is how you find the unit, and then that's how you get access to the, the other records of unit histories that tell you about what he or she was involved with. So those lists are absolutely priceless. I don't know how many hundred thousand names are in them, but I have found dozens of soldiers that document what we have in our collection, and then that's the access into those unit histories, and it's so much rich history that is then opened up to you. So I'll invite Lindsay up, tell you a little bit about access, and then again, invite you up to see our place. Anybody from Maryland, please stick around. I want to say hi. mentioned we have uh, tons of materials and we really want to help you guys we have 16 million archival pieces um, that are accessible online they are not all digitized but we have an in-house digitization um, team right now it's very small and then we're hopefully getting a contract within the next year or so to um, digitize mass amounts of our information to get it out there um, this is our main website the it was up earlier but it's also www.us 
A-H-E-C.org. The Army, we love our acronyms. We are also known as AHEC. Um, this Library and Archives tab will take you to um, this page. Most people are going to be non-DOD and faculty and staff, so you guys are going to click on the blue button. What that does, we are the Army War College Library. We're one library in two locations. We have contemporary stuff that the War College students use now, and then we have the historical archival material, diaries, photographs, and um, such in our um, archives. And then we also have, you can search just our digital collections. So um, we have research guides upstairs in our exhibit hall. I should have brought them down here to kind of help you work through all of this stuff. But if you see anything, contact us. Um, we can help get you access to things. If you're missing pieces, uh, you have a soldier story and you need photographs from his unit, you can reach out to our research team and they can get you access to that material. Um, we have the capability of scanning you know, up to 600 DPI. We have videos, oral histories, and things like that that you guys can access. Um, our other way that we've been getting the word out there back on the main page is our educator's toolbox. Um, Francois mentioned earlier about military history. Is, Army history is not just military history. It's the history of the United States. We have everything from technology to integration of women in the military service. Um, integration of African Americans happened in the Army before the US. Um, we have tons of sources, and we've kind of curated some of that information for teachers on our educator's toolbox, but um, you guys can also easily use that so you don't have to necessarily go through the um, full search of our archives. We have broken it down by um, different eras, and since we're talking specifically about World War I, this shows the curated um, pieces that pulled. A lot of teachers, we found out, don't like the lesson plans. We were doing full lesson plans, but they like to mix and match all their stuff, but they love the primary sources. They love that we pull out things that they might be interested in, and then they can download these, use them in their classroom, and make their own interpretations and um, things like that. So you guys are welcome to go through and see all that different stuff. Other resources we have, um, we have a lecture series. Uh, we'll go this. We have a lecture series once a month on um, we are the history of the Army, so many different topics. And we have recorded them since 2008, and they are all accessible online on our YouTube page. Our username is the Usahek, and you can search all of those. You can use them. Um, Jay had mentioned the Veteran Survey Program. We also have oral histories. So we have uh, oral history on video of Frank Buckles, who was the last surviving World War I um, soldier. And so it's his entire, his entire uni um, interview is up on YouTube. So those are resources you guys can use. You don't have to spend money on them. Um, you can search our archives for specific soldiers that were in your area if you're a specific county historical society. Um, we also do programs on different topics. We have a wonderful genealogist at our facility that does a program on using military record for genealogy. A lot of people don't necessarily think about that, or they'll just have a photograph with a soldier in it and not know where to go from there. They don't know name, they don't know unit. So he goes through teaching how to look at patches, how to look at uniforms and things like that to identify your soldier, to find that unit and then bring it back to AHEC which we have a lot of the unit histories. 
So we help solve a lot of problems for people, and um, a lot of people don't know about us, so that's why um, we do these types of things in the outreach and the um, exhibit booths. We have a traveling exhibit program that we're creating. Right now we have one set for the World War I posters. Um, we have a Korean War veteran that had PTSD that would wake up and draw his night terrors that's going to go on display. Um, I'm assuming Bancroft is going to also be one of the, the art ones are easy enough to, to send out. Um, and then finally on our toolbox, we have additional resources. So not just our stuff, we have the National World War I Museum on here, um, the Center for Military History, who is above all of the Army Museums, um, and the Centennial Commission. So these resources are available to you. Like I said, we have everything upstairs if you need links to things, want to talk more, get the research guides, get linked to the uh, reference historians. I have a little toolbox um, handout on this table. Uh, there's not enough for everybody. So again, there's more upstairs. So I can end with that. Very good. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to drag the books out so you can take a look at some of the books that are in the bibliography. Um, every year I've been going to the uh, World War I Symposium that's held at uh, Matt's Museum. Uh, it's first week of November. And a couple of things I've picked up from there is um, some uh, thoughts that different scholars had was um, all of the world's problems today can be traced right back to World War I. And whereas most wars have a clear cause, World War I is a war that doesn't. And it's a war where the U.S. basically becomes a global power, and the U.S. came into the war in 1917 and ended the war in 1918. So, um, tomorrow morning at 7 a.m., we're having the Military History Affinity Group breakfast, so if you want to get up real early, our speakers, uh, Eric Villiard, who is a historian at the Center for Military History, uh, the Army Museum headquarters, basically, and he's going to talk on uh, World War I resources and the website he created and everything. Um, the Military History Group's having a collections camp. Uh, it's a biannual thing that we do. Uh, this next one will be June 20th to 23rd at Fort Eustis, Virginia, which is Newport News. And it'll be at the Army Transportation Museum. And it's about two and a half days of intense uh, military uniforms, weapons, dealing with machine guns that you find, just everything you might want to know about working with military stuff. And myself and Myers Brown have done the last four or five of those for AASLH. Uh, AEC has a booth upstairs where you get some more of their literature. And I'd like to invite Matt down for a couple of words about his place, and then we'll open it up for questions. And don't forget to come down and take handouts and stuff. Good deal. Are we using, are they, uh, they're not broadcasting this, they are. are they? They are. Okay, so it better be my, by the microphone. Well, firstly, thank you, Gordon, and the team for uh, talking about this really important uh, topic. It's important to me. I'm Matt Naylor and uh, head up the National World War I Museum and Memorial, which is in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, and we tell the story of the war from the beginning to the end and its enduring impact. And it's uh, told 
uh, it's told comprehensively. We collect encyclopedically, so from all belligerents, and we, uh, and we tell uh, the thorough story. So just a couple of comments about that. Um, Theworldwar.org is our website, and we have a whole stack of resources there for you. Uh, it's, uh, we have a, um, more than a, a half a million uh, people use the resources each year from, uh, for, at the website. There's a whole lot of really good educational content there. So if you were to, um, if you went to uh, educators, and then there's uh, lesson plans, there's all sorts of educational content there. And if you have an educator who you like, or you yourself are an educator, you might like to, uh, today or tomorrow, I think today might even be the last day, you can nominate yourself for a free trip to the museum. So you go online to worldwar.org and do that. I think it's, it closes today, uh, perhaps. Can I... Um, can we can we yeah, put that up? So all sorts of educational content up there. Another one you might want to look at there is some of the public programming that we do, because whilst we are a museum that tells the story of World War One, uh, our visitorship uh, and last year we served uh, just over five hundred and twenty-five thousand guests. Our visitorship, lots of people who aren't interested in military history. So our public programming consequently also deals with lots of people who aren't interested in military history. Thank you. Um, so this is just there was the kindness of their hearts. They invited me uh, to make some comment here. If you went to learn and then educators and students, and then if we uh, scroll down a little bit, you would say educational resources, and then educational resources then you'll see uh, there's a, you can index it, but disloyalty, uh, remembering World War I, posters, American Committee for the Relief in the Northeast, in the Near East, Western Front at the Cinema, um, with one voice about music and World War I, propaganda, um, sedition, uh, stubby. Who you know, any time you got a dog or something, it's very popular. So I mean, there's 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 a whole stack of really interesting content. And then if you were interested in public programming, as I say, we deal with lots of folks who have no interest in, in the military history, then you might look at upcoming events uh, and go back any number of months and see some of the things that we've done to give yourself some, in, some uh, ideas, recognising that I should think most of us here don't have a lot of resources to spend on you know, full-on exhibitions. But for example, this month we've got a educational program about women physicians in World War One. We have a a, 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 a screening of the movie Letters from Baghdad. Uh, we have a day in the life uh, a trench warfare, so that's a requires some expertise. Recipe, uh, we have a a children's story time, uh, a splash of red. The Life of Art in Horence Pippin. Every month we have a st children's story time, which are enormously popular. Mrs. Wilson's Knitting Circle is another thing which is done. For millennials, we will do things like um, Warfare, which is a, f a food cook-off competition using World War I rations that local restaurants do. Uh, we have um, Tattoos in World War I. Surreal experience for me on a Wednesday night 
465 people in the auditorium. We've got a classic lecture about World War I and the making of the modern Middle East. The next night, it's Operation Inc., which is about World War I and tattoos. I'm sitting on the, on the um, platform moderating a discussion between an historian of tattoos, but there are such things, and a, a whispering Danny, who's a local tattoo artist, and we're talking about tattoos and what their meaning was and how they were used in World War I and such. And in the audience, it's packed with 20- and 30-year-olds dressed to show off their tattoos. And it was a great experience from the, from the older library set the, day, the night before to this fantastic audience of, of uh, younger adults who were now learning about issues related to the commemoration uh, of World War I. So that's another resource that you might like to look at which has uh, ideas. Some are really easy things that you would be able to do in the places um, that you operate. Um, I have uh, talking with John this morning about an objective that we have together with the Centennial Commission, the United States War well, One Centennial Commission, of which I'm a commissioner, um, to help you in the work that you do. Uh, in uh, Some of you may uh, be interested in doing some commemorative activities. And so the content that we provide through our educators newsletter on a bi-monthly basis, which is distributed to about 500,000 teachers, we're working with ASLH to provide it to you. So that just has lots of ideas in it. They're simple things that you can do and adapt to the circumstances where you find yourselves. So I'll leave it at that. The worldwide.org, remember to enter the competition if you want to get a free trip to the uh, museum and memorial. And uh, it's also a great resource place for you to see things. And of course, in addition to already uh, what you've seen here. So thank you. Thank you, Matt. Okay, I asked uh, Francois what I forgot, and uh, where to get reproductions. That got a whole lot more difficult about two years ago when the best supplier of everything World War I sold out her business to another company. And they basically took her product line and tripled the prices. So um, if you want reproductions, uh, send me an email, give me a call, let me know what you're looking for, and let me see what I can dig up. Because, you know, your basic World War I uniform went from being fairly affordable to being insane. Uh, just a tunic now will cost you, I think, $350. You can get an original World War I tunic for a third that price. So, problem is you won't be able to fit it on yourself unless you're like a 12-year-old boy. So, uh, <laughs> And NARA, that's the National Archives, has a World War I exhibit that you can rent. So, uh, and that's what I understand I missed. Bill, would you like to say anything about your establishment? Um, well, we are, we're at Kentucky Park in Wheaton, uh, Illinois. We're specifically, we can dedicate the history of the First Infantry Division. engagement uh, for Americans in World War One, which was the Battle of Cantini. And, oh. Yes, we're being broadcast. Oh, okay. You need to start all over again, Bill. Do you really want me to start all over again? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm from Cantini. <laughs> I'm from Cantini Park, uh, the First Division Museum at Cantini Park in Wheaton, Illinois. Our museum tells the history of the United States Army's 1st Infantry Division, which was the first division for the United States Army and the first American division to deploy overseas, fought the first American battle, the Battle of Cantini, for which our park is named. 
the reason that the park is uh, named Cantini is we are in the estate of Robert R. McCormick. Uh, Robert R. McCormick commanded the 5th Artillery at the Battle of Cantini. Uh, he went on to establish WGN television and radio, also was the editor of the Chicago Tribune. When he died in 1955, he left his then $55 million estate uh, to establish uh, an educational uh, foundation. Uh, and part of the, the writing, part of uh, written into that uh, foundation establishment was the perpetuation of the history of the United States Army's First Division. Thus, we exist and um, we provide the ongoing education uh, and really serve as a national museum, although we draw primarily from the, the local area. We just reopened two weeks ago. Uh, we've been closed since last November. Uh, completely redid our exhibits. Now, anybody who's been to the museum previously will know that uh, we're known for an immersive uh, environmental experience that was originally created in 1992. Uh, now, that is still maintained. We still have a walk-through trench, uh, World War I trench, but we redid all the lighting. We added a significant amount of media content, upgraded our exhibits and our abilities to display objects. We have a pretty significant collection. But really, the, the major turnaround has nothing to do with World War I. We added an entire new gallery because we are responsible for covering the history of the division from its inception uh, to the current time. So we added a gallery that tells the history of the division from immediately after Vietnam on up to the current conflicts. Uh, so uh, we're certainly available also if, if anyone has any questions or is interested. We have a, a good archives. Of course, it is dedicated solely to the first division. So if that's the type of information you're looking for, we're a great resource. If you're looking for stuff on the second division, don't call us. Uh, we will be no help whatsoever. Um, but we'd certainly encourage you all to come out and visit us also. We'd, we'd love to have uh, other museum professionals come by and, and you can shoot us an email or whatever and, and we'll take you behind the scenes and show you what we're doing. Thank you, Bill, our Battle Decks champion. Oh. Okay, uh, we've got about 12 minutes left. Questions? And, oh my gosh, I'll start with closest. Okay, um, I had a question about the U.S. Army Transportation Link. It feels like Ancestry has moved a lot of those military records to Fold 3, which seems to be a separate subscription. Um, are the Army Transportation Records still available directly through Ancestry, or have they been moved? Or do you know? I don't know. The one record that I was talking about were the transportation lists. And I use them. We have Fold 3. We just recently started using I don't find them there. I find them on Ancestry. So I couldn't say if they're not in both places. Yeah. Uh, two quick questions. Uh, the term doughboy, did that come from all those donuts they were eating? As I, well, actually, you might be better off to answer this question. The way I understand it, it's not from the donuts so much as it is that when they arrived in France, they looked a whole lot more healthy and round and plump cheeks, and so that's why they were called the Doughboys. Okay, and the, my other quick question is, I've been doing research on local World I soldiers who died in 1918, but their bodies weren't returned till 1921. Is that, a, was that a common thing? Was there a reason for that? Because I'm pretty much finding that across the board. Yeah, so after, uh, after the war, um, Initially, soldiers were buried one, two, or three times all over wherever they were able to be buried in the battlefield, and those bodies were collected together and put um, into American cemeteries. 
through the uh, American Battlefield Commission and monuments. And actually, they're, they're in existence now. But every family was given the option to have their um, son brought home if they wanted. Um, in fact, there was even a, a group of Gold Star Mothers, which originate in World War I, who were taken over by the Quartermaster Corps um, to visit those grave sites of those soldiers that weren't coming home. The others were brought home throughout the 1920s and actually the 1930s on um, trains, literally. They were packed onto ships and then they were put on the trains and the trains went from town to town. Um, they looked very much like, they were mortuary trains. They, they looked like hearses, but on trains. Uh, from town to town to town. So that's why you might have um, a repatriated soldier, you know, decades after. In fact, even today, a family could ask for one of those soldiers to be brought home. One of the other explanations for Doughboy was uh, during the Mexican punitive expedition in 1916, soldiers in their uniforms were covered with the khaki-colored dust, which looked the color of dough, and that is one of the other explanations of where the word doughboy comes from. That's, is it? That's the argument that we use. The, uh, adobe, oh. so it's adobe dust that they had on. There are the adobe boys, is what, they, what the cavalry would have said to the infantry. There are the adobe boys. There are the doughboys. Okay. So what Matt said was color of adobe. Um, and so the cavalrymen would refer to the infantrymen as there are the adobe boys or doughboys. Hi, I just wanted to mention another resource that you may not know about but could be very helpful for you, especially from the local history angle, is the German Historical Institute has a digital encyclopedia. It's biographies of immigrant entrepreneurs. And for those of us who are writers for it, um, we were tasked with really thinking about the effects of World War I and World War II on German-Americans, specifically those people we were profiling, and then the um, uh, whatever was occurring in the community at the time. All of those biographies include uh, links to additional resources, including local historical societies, national museums. I mean, for example, I actually went to the World War I Museum to do some of my research. So there may be a ton of sources there that you would have free and easy access to because that was part of our other um, condition of writing it to have as many uh, accessible resources to people for whoever would view those articles. Um, there's some difficult stories that need to be told out there, and the one I, I really want to tell, and I'm great at research, but I'm not good at writing, and I'm trying, having trouble finding partners or somebody that might want to take it on, is, is it's the uh, Houston Mutiny. Any advice on that? Uh, <laughs> gosh. Matt, do you, the, the Houston Mutiny? So this is, uh, I, I don't uh, have all the details, but the story is uh, of the, a, a, uh, um, a, a protest that went, went bad, and then a whole group of African-American uh, soldiers who then were tried within a day, uh, 16 of them so were executed. Uh, and uh, we featured in a recent exhibition that we have, 
uh, are called Revolution 1917. And uh, so Doran Cart at our uh, museum would be a good one to talk to if you'd be interested in connecting. It's a, it's a tragic story. Uh, but we, uh, we have a, uh, a recent exhibition that we have, we tell part of that story. If I can add really quickly also, um, there's a really rich history of African-American uh, soldiers in their service in the segregated army in World War I. And um, the curator for the military portion of the National Museum of African-American History, his name is Krawalski Salter, Dr. Krawalski Salter. He's written several books. He's a great resource if anybody's interested in the, in the African-American history story of those contributions in World War I. It is tough to find information on that subject. So, okay, I got you, 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 and there. Uh, you guys have focused very heavily on the U.S. Army, and uh, I think this has been great. Um, but do you have any resources for naval records? I sure don't. <laughs> Jay? Yeah, but we do have some, because we do a lot of inter-service things, and actually have a very strong personal interest in Navy in World War I, so why don't we talk afterwards and can point you in the direction of some things. Um, I have two questions. One is looking for resources on the home front. Um, I, you know, about war relief clubs and the high schools and things like that, so where might one place for that be? And the other question is, how did Wonder Woman impact you all with bringing World War I into the cinema? So, but question one. So. I can talk a little bit to the home front. Uh, when I was working on my book in my county, the, we were fortunate the Historical Society to have the records of the Council of Defense. There was a National Council of Defense, and then in each state, and then down to the county level, you had a chairman of the Council of Defense. Uh, the local newspapers were a gold mine of information, what was going on locally. Uh, down to, you know, if you're in a, a rural county like I lived in, you have a local column for each little community, and you read those in 1917, 1918. I abstracted a couple newspapers to find all that information, but down to the level of, they were putting out little red, white, and blue cans and barrels in front of country store, and you're supposed to put your peach pits in there because they made the charcoal for gas mask. It was an essential item in World War One. And some boys had tipped over the peach pits and were playing with them, and they got chided in the local newspaper for being not patriotic. But it, it gives you an idea of what was going on in each local community. And they were publishing soldiers' letters as they were being sent home to the papers so people would know what was going on. So they can be a gold mine of, of information. Check your local paper. Uh, but the Council of Defense coordinated everything with the Red Cross, YMCA, all of those activities. And uh, those were major organizations that were doing a lot of war work. So if, if you can find their records or find mentions of them, that's a clue. On the uh, Houston Mutiny, um, Dr. Garner Christian, recently retired professor from the University of Houston, has written quite a bit on that subject, is probably one of the foremost academics uh, familiar with uh, that incident. There's also um, a playwright also from the Houston area by the name of Celeste Walker that wrote a play that was toured fairly widely that's fairly decently written historically accurate and that sort of thing it was like I said I'm not sure if it's currently being toured by any group but there's a play out there on it as well but Garner Christian one of the foremost experts on that
other than that's where they were stationed at the time. Well, they weren't. They were actually stationed a couple blocks down from Capitol yeah. And one programming note, may, remember, you cannot leave this room until you fill out that green sheet. That's what that guy down there is doing. Hi, my name is Johanna Yon. I'm the Orange County historian in New York, and I'm planning a trip to follow the movements of the 104th New York, or sorry, 107th New York Regiment. Um, and we're going to go to Belgium and France a year from now, September. So I'm just asking everyone here if you have any interest in that, talk to me, or if you know of any resources, or even if you have any advice as to where I should bring people once we get to France itself. We're going to try to see the training camps and see the battlefield. Um, we had 43 men from our community die at the Battle of St. Quentin Canal, September 29th, 1918. So as of now, our, our purpose is to go to that spot at the Centennial, but I welcome any advice. Have you gotten the uh, American Battlefield Monuments Guide to World War I? Well, you need to get one of those, because that's what people use when they wanted to go visit the battlefield. It's exactly what you're doing. We have uh, images of the 107th in our Signal Corps collection. Another really excellent, somewhat dated book um, is by a British lady, Before Endeavors Fade. It's like the first, or no, actually second, battlefield guide. Uh, and there's been some more recent ones done with good color photographs and everything, but she's got maps and photographs of the monuments and some directions and everything. So let's also, see. Can I just oh. add, I would recommend anybody that is doing that, you do get a hold of the American Battlefield Monuments Commission directly. They have um, incredible programs already set up. They can take you wherever you need to go, tell you whatever the history, and hook you up with local local residents also. And this is true for World War I is World War II. So they're a really good resource if you're going to do a tour over there to, to set things up for you. You can't, a, you can't ask. <laughs> okay, last question. Uh, I've noticed a number of people talking about their trench uh, aspect of their exhibit and I'm just curious about are there any plans anywhere do you have any special recommendations about how to bring a trench into the exhibit we have uh, Clay County Minnesota we had a thousand soldiers serve and um, very interested in that but I am particularly interested in making it wheelchair accessible and so I'm kind of curious about what people have done Real quickly, what we did is we didn't change the floor surface. Now, we do have an outdoor trench that is down in the ground, and it's a different experience. But indoor, it's just on carpet like a room like this. So it's giving you a, an environment, but not that realistic. Outdoor is more realistic, and it's on board. So two experiences. But I think if you're going to do it indoor, you, you can't simulate it completely. You want to make it fully accessible. So. You might be able to use duck boards. I don't know if that'd qualify, but it would be an unnaturally wide trench. You want to help? While, while you're getting the mic, um, if I could, I'm sorry to interrupt, just to finish. Lindsay suggested we do have blueprints in the archives of World War I trenches. If that'd be something to help you, we could send that to you. Be happy. I don't know if you've been to, uh, any of you been to the Marine Corps Museum that recently opened? Some of their World War I exhibit is fantastic. The Bella Wood exhibit that they have. They did the floors, they did the trees, they have hay bales for you to sit on. I um, mean, the way you walk through things, so that might be something to look at, because that is wheelchair accessible. I was gonna mention that. Someone asked about the Navy. Um, some of the other services, the Naval Heritage and Historical Command has 
piece of rep right there. Oh, well, right there, there you go. Um, the Quantico, uh, the, for the Marines, they have resources. Um, there's an awesome Air Force Museum in Dayton. We have, for World War One, they were still the Army Air Corps. Um, so we have that stuff for that time period. But those are other branches' resources. And the Coast Guard has one in Maryland somewhere. I'm not as familiar with it, but a lot of their stuff is technical manuals. Uh, we are out of time. And you're a long ways away, so can you come down and ask, or is this something for everybody? Okay, great. All right, thank you all for coming.